Good morning, Hosanna. How are you? Good. All right. Well, my name is Luke Allison. I'm one of the pastors here. I get to serve in that way, and I want to welcome you to our, our, one of our final weeks of the Peaks of Scripture sermon series. I also want to say hi to everybody who's joining us online right now, and I like to do sort of some interactions, you know, that kind of thing when I'm preaching, get you guys to say things. So if you're online and you're watching in the privacy of your own home, I'd also encourage you to just yell out the same way that everybody else in the room yells out, and that way we're all together. So go ahead and do that if you're there. Uh, it's, it's really great to be with you, and I want to invite the ushers forward to take this morning's tithes and offerings. And as always, thank you for partnering with us as we multiply the hope and heartbeat of Jesus. Thank you for being a church who gives. And uh, it's, it's always a great time to be up here and to teach, but I'm especially excited about this particular message because I think it has a lot to say with where we are, both in the world and where we are maybe in our own personal lives, and then as a church body going into a new sort of season uh, as we move into the fall here. So if you have these little Peaks of Scripture notebooks, hold them up if you have them. Uh, yeah, make sure you grab one of these. These are helpful. This kind of helps us to double back on whatever it is that maybe God was doing in our hearts during the sermon. And then in the course of the week, we can use this as sort of a guide to walk through uh, whatever he might be showing us during the week as well. So I encourage you to use them if you have them. And this is the Temple Mount. So it starts on page 59 is the, uh, the right page there. So we'll be talking about the Temple Mount today. And Peace of Scripture has been all about looking at different mountains in the story of the Bible and sort of uh, engaging the story of what's going on around that mountain. And it tells us a lot about our relationship with God, how to walk in the valleys, whatever else uh, might happen there. And so I want to kind of start talking about the Temple Mount by doing something I don't normally do, which is to read uh, the text all the way up in front, and then we'll kind of come back to it as time goes on. Is that okay? Cool. All right. So I'm going to read it. It's Mark 11, verses 11 through 21. Read the whole story, and then we'll get into it. I want to make sure uh, that I'm stepping to the right direction here to, for everyone to be able to see online. So I think I need to step this way, and it should be good. So Mark 11, 11 to 21 says, So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. And the next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry, and he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only, figs, or there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves." When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him, but they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. This is God's word for us this morning, and please join me in praying. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for each person here who has come. We believe the Lord has led everyone here today. And, and Father, your Holy Spirit is the only one who can take words on a page, thoughts in a mind, 
feelings in a heart and all of the different individual stories out there right now who can take those, all those things and work them together into this beautiful portrait of what it is you're doing right now. You can make something truly amazing and transformational come out of all of those pieces that left to themselves kind of aren't necessarily as fulfilling. So Father, please bring what I'm saying and bring the experiences and the stories of everyone here together into something that changes lives and something that bears fruit. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so this is a passage of scripture that, that shows Jesus getting angry. You know, do you often think of Jesus as someone who gets angry? Is that your first thought about him? Uh, what makes you angry is a good question. What makes me angry? I'd be willing to bet there's, well, actually, raise your hand if you've ever been angry before. <laughs> All right, so we've connected. That's awesome. Uh, I'd be willing to bet there's a lot of things that make you angry, because I know this about me, that are, you know, some are really important, but some are also pretty inconsequential in the grand scheme of things. I'm thinking of some things like uh, when you're aiming the remote right at the TV, you know what I'm saying? You're hitting the button over and over again, that light's flashing saying, I'm working, but nothing's happening, right? Oh, just frustrating. Uh, how about this one? When there's a person in front of you in the express lane, and it says 10 items or less, 10 items or less, and they have 12, 13, 14 items, and they're taking a long time, and you're going, 10 items or less. Anyone else? Okay, maybe just me. Um, when you're, oh, this one, I know for sure. So when you're trying to open a bag of almonds or of chips, and it's got that little notch at the top, and what does it say? You know, Tear here, which would make sense, like, oh, I'm supposed to tear there, and that will be what I'm supposed to do. And so you try to apply pressure, and it doesn't quite work the way you want it, and you apply a little more and a little more, and suddenly what happens? The whole thing explodes, and almonds go everywhere, and my little dog eats them. You know, that's the way it works. Uh, How about this one? When you come to a crosswalk, and I'm all for, you know, pedestrian right-of-way. I've been to California where they really treat pedestrians well, and I think we should do that more here. Sometimes we're too hostile to pedestrians. But, you know, you let them go, and you stop like you're supposed to do, and they, rather than wave and say, hey, or whatever, they're on their phone, and they're doing this, you know, across the crosswalk. And you're like, well, obviously you don't have anywhere to be, but I do, so maybe hurry up. Uh, and then you rage out inside of your car. Um, or how about when, now this is one, this is, this is probably the deepest, most serious one that I'm going to address is, how about when people say coupon instead of coupon, right? <laughs> oh, deep down, deep down pain from that one for me. Or how about this, milk instead of milk? Are you here, the ones that do that? You know, it's okay, don't raise your hands. Um, it's an E, though, guy, or it's an I, it's not an E. Um, and, and how about this one? People who say Hosanna instead of Hosanna. Does that bother you? <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> I can say this because we're friends. Uh, but, you know, serious stuff awaiting him on Monday after that. So just kidding, just kidding. Um, a lot of things make us, make us angry. Uh, and I know for some of you that have children, and, and this is actually sort of a new announcement, is that I just found out that uh, I'm going to join your ranks very soon in February, actually. So, ooh, baby. <laughs> 37 years of not being a dad, and now I have to learn how to be a dad. You know, and they don't teach you a course on this or anything, so you're just like, here you go, here's a baby, right? So, man, I'm freaking out a little bit. We'll see, it's going to be good. Um, but I know for some of you that have children, uh, If you see your kids making decisions, and some of you, I'm sure, have walked through this, but if you see your kids making decisions and you know that those decisions aren't the best thing for them, or it's potentially a destructive decision that could hurt themselves or hurt others, or maybe you just see them kind of sitting in one place and not using the gifts they've been given or not using the potential that's inside them, whatever that might be. And so as parents who love deeply, you say, I know there's more to you than this. And so you get this sense of maybe anger inside of you of like, I want to see you do more. And it's not because you hate, it's because you love. 
And I think anger is actually a healthy emotion that, if we express it right, says a lot about who we are. Um, you know, people who have love in their heart are people who are going to feel anger at some point because none of us wants to see somebody we love walking off of a cliff, even if it's a cliff of their own making, right? Maybe especially if it's a cliff of their own making. I think that anger is important. I think it says a lot about us, who we are, what we value. There's only a few times in the Gospels where we see Jesus get really ticked off at things that happen. And so I think it's actually a really valuable lesson to see what are those things that make him angry. We see one of them today and to ask, you know, why is that? Because it says a lot about who Jesus is and what he values by what he gets angry at. So what made Jesus angry is the question. It says the day after his entry into Jerusalem, and we call that Palm Sunday. You know, we're going to celebrate it not too long from now. Time goes fast. Uh, we celebrate that, and Jesus is walking, it says, back up toward the Temple Mount. And so I want to throw a picture up of the Temple Mount. This is sort of an artist 3D rendering of the scale of the Temple Mount in that time. This is the complex. That building in the center is the actual temple, and then the Mount Complex kind of goes around it. And you can see the little tiny ant-like people, right? I mean, this is a massive, massive building. You can still go and see the original blocks that were there in the first place, and no one really knows how they were cut and how they were moved because they're massive, right? And the guy who built this was a king named Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was really good at building big, amazing things, not so good at avoiding killing his family, which is kind of what he's known for, uh, killing brothers and sons and relatives, so not a good guy at all. But he built this temple sort of as a means of trying to say, look, guys, I can do good things too, right? Uh, and so he built this. And you can see there's sort of an outer court area where all those people are. And then as you go deeper in, you kind of see smaller and smaller spaces. And that's the way the temple complex was set up. Now, Jesus is going up to this. And this temple was the center of the religious, the political, and the economic life for the Jewish nation in the first century. So we often think of the temple, we think of the church. And so we say, oh, it's like church back then, which is true. So think of the church, but also think of the Capitol building in St. Paul, and also think of the Mall of America, maybe, all sort of uh, crushed together into one huge complex building. That's what the temple represented. And it says Jesus is walking up to the temple, the center of life for the Jewish people, and he's feeling a little hungry, or maybe in this case a little hangry, right? And in the distance he sees a fig tree. Have you ever seen a fig tree before? Maybe some of you have. We have a picture here I want to show you. Fig tree, this is basically what fig trees look like when they're in leaf. They're growing leaves, and when they're in leaf like this, it means probably that they're going to have fruit on them. And so from a distance, Jesus sees this, and he goes, oh man, my stomach's growling. Hot dang, some figs. And I'm paraphrasing Jesus there, but you know, he, he comes forward and he says, figs, you know, I'm really hungry. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a fig. And even though it's out of season, it still looks like it has fruit, so I'm going to go. And it says he walks, and he gets closer and he tries to find some figs, but what does he find? Nothing. A lot of leaves, but no fruit. And something happens that only happens this one time in the whole Bible, and it says that Jesus curses the fig tree. It's kind of a strong reaction, right? I mean, I, I like trees a lot. I love them. We need them, you know? And so I'm always kind of like, what did the tree ever do to him? You know, and I read this, and I know some other people who have been troubled by that passage as they read it to say, what the heck's going on here? Why was he so angry at the fig tree that he'd do something he'd never done before? 
to curse it. And I've thought about this, and I've prayed about this, and here's what I've kind of come to. Is that, friends, we, you and I, were put on this earth to bear fruit. That's why we're here. The very first thing the people of God are told to do in the whole story, if you go way back to the beginning, sort of the founding document for God's people, the the primary command for God's people is to be what and multiply? Be fruitful and multiply. Now, does that just mean have a lot of kids? It could, yes. That's definitely one of the meanings. Scripture always kind of reveals deeper meanings as we go deeper into it, and so that's part of it. But there's another part here that says fruit is more, means more than just that. Being fruitful has a lot to do with creating and producing something that feeds the world, not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way. We know that God in his very nature, is someone who constantly creates and empowers and gives and conceives and feeds those who are spiritually hungry. He never stops being fruitful. And we're made in his image. And so we are called to never stop being fruitful as well. So when Jesus looked at this fig tree, he saw a created thing, a living thing, using all of its energy, all of its resources, and doing what with them? Hoarding them. I'm going to look real big and full of leaves, but I'm not going to produce any fruit. And here's why I think that makes him so angry is that he sees literally the opposite of what created things were meant to do. And it reminds him of something else that's going on just a short distance away. And he gets angry. Now, we're all probably aware, and, and I'll remind you, that I, I think we live in an ABC culture. Do you know what ABC means? Uh, ABC culture, always be consuming. That's our culture that we live in. I had a professor in seminary who would say, you know, Descartes famously said, I think, therefore I am. He thought we should say, I consume or I spend, therefore I am. That's kind of our culture, what our culture says, I mean, right now, there's a lot of studies going into a a very real psychological condition that's happening all the time and getting more prevalent, which is called retail therapy. It's this idea that I feel a void in my life of some kind. I feel a sense of purposelessness. I don't like the way I look today. I don't like the way I'm feeling today. And I know the best possible thing I could do to fill that void is to go and shop, purchase something, buy something. And this, something happens with that, you know. Um, there's a very real sort of thing that begins to happen when we focus on life in this way. And, you know, for me, one of my greatest sort of primary ways that I engage is like cheap, you know, looking for cheap fashion on sale. You know, that's kind of one of the things that I love. It's something that looks good from a distance but is cheap when you get up close, kind of like the fig tree, I guess. But um, it's one of these things I love, although I will say I'm not super thrilled with the fashion industry because they're so clothes-minded. Um. Okay. Uh, same exact reaction, two services. This may be the last time I ever preach again. So don't get used to seeing this face. Uh, we'll see. I probably have a meeting coming on Monday after that one. Uh, I had a professor, another professor in seminary, and he would start, he had a whole class he taught on preaching and how to preach. And he started that whole thing by saying this. He said, tomorrow, when you wake up, Whether you're aware or not, you'll be presented with somewhere around 1,600 different 
messages, advertising things, vying for your attention, telling you you need things. If you just get this, that void will be filled. And he says every single one of these is presented in the form where it's like a little mini sermon. You know, preaching something to you, giving you a message. And then he said nearly every one of them is telling you that the gospel of Jesus Christ is wrong. You know, kind of a sobering thought there to be bombarded by these without even necessarily realizing it. Uh, There's a philosopher named E.F. Schumacher who has a book that he wrote a long time ago called A Guide for the Perplexed, which not great bathroom reading, but I like to read that kind of stuff. Um, And it says he was visiting Moscow during the Stalinist era, so in the the 40s, and he got lost while sightseeing and he couldn't figure out where he was on the map. And so he's looking at the map and he can't figure out where he is. And there's these state-sponsored tourism guides that would come around and help people with this. And so they came up to him and said, um, where do you, what do you need? Do you need help? And he said, well, I can't find myself on the map. Where am I right now? And the tourist guide or the tour guide poked at a particular spot and said, this is where you are. And Schumacher looked around and said, well, that can't be because I see this beautiful cathedral over here. And I see this beautiful Orthodox church over here. And I see more churches around, but none of those are showing on the map. And the tourist guide said, well, we don't put churches on our maps anymore. And Schumacher said, well, what about this one? Because there's a church over there, and I see that one on the map. And the guide said, well, that's not a church anymore. That's a museum. I thought that's such an interesting story. Because when it comes to bearing fruit as human beings made in the image of God, I think so often this concept that this is what we were made for, I think it's not even necessarily always on our map. We don't see it. We're we're not being told that this is important. We're being told a million other things are more important. And the problem is, just because we don't see it on the map doesn't mean it's not there and it's not real. And I think this Schumacher, if he were to try to walk through the space that's empty on the map, you know, towards the church, eventually he'd hit it, you know, face first and a crash would happen, right? And if we don't acknowledge that what we were made to do is to bear fruit that we weren't made for all of these other things, at some point we're going to run face first into that reality and a crash is going to happen. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't say really quickly that when it comes to experiencing this crash or going through this sort of sense where we're feeling maybe like we've hit a point in life where we need more, um, we have this core course that we're starting at Hosanna, or we've done for a little while, but we're starting it up on September 10th and September 13th called Freedom Story. And we delve deeply into Freedom Story. We talk about what it is that Jesus accomplished when he died for us, how that goes you know, into forgiveness, but even further into healing, deep healing and, and freedom, how we live free of our thoughts that maybe drive us down the wrong paths or emotions that are negative. And so I want to invite every person. I think there's probably 10 people in here who could really use a course like that, but I want to invite everybody as well. I think everyone could use it. It's pretty broad and it's pretty basic stuff, like how to walk in freedom. So I want to just do that quick advertisement starting September 10th, Freedom Story. Find out more info in your bulletins and website. So there you go. There's my ad back into what we're talking about here. Jesus brings the crash in the story. And we see that his feelings for the fig tree, and this is really interesting, his feelings for the fig tree seem to be directly connected to 
his feelings for the temple in this case. So he goes from the fig tree right to the temple. And he starts doing something. He starts, says, turning over tables and interrupting the flow of commerce for the people that are selling animal sacrifices to people. And, and he gets in the way and he's, he's really getting angry about it. And he's, he's showing some physical force. You know, what's going on. He's, he's saying something with this. See, I had this picture that when he sees the fig tree, something rises up in him that he connects directly to what he knows is going on in the temple. And it like, he just, oh, he has to, he has to do something about it. And so he walks into the temple and he starts doing this. Now, this isn't a private display. I want to show you a picture that kind of, I think, captures how this would have felt. You know, this many people are all around. It's a little chaotic. It's a little crazy. Uh, in this time of the year, this is the time of Passover, when every person in the Jewish nation from all over would come and convene on the same spot and be present to worship in the temple. So think, think the same atmosphere, maybe, as um, like if you're at uh, Target Field and it's a really busy day in a game, you know, and, and you have the, the food and drink areas just packed, right? And then you got some person coming in and like throwing the tables over and trying to keep people from buying stuff. You know, it doesn't work super well. It's chaotic. Everyone's going, what's going on? Think of it this way. This is very public. And Jesus goes to town in the temple. And it says as he does it, he's quoting. He's quoting two passages from Isaiah and from Jeremiah. And it says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. This is a thought here that if we go all the way back to the beginning, if we read the story of Scripture, we try to get a feel for what it is God means when he says, be fruitful. We'll see that it's actually pretty simple. It's usually some variation on love God and love other people sacrificially. You know, lay down your lives to love other people. That's sort of the picture from the very beginning that we get. Uh, Micah 6.8 has a real famous version of this that says, what do, you, what do I require of you people? It's to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You know, love God and love others. Jesus said this too, right? We've heard this before. But from the beginning, we also see that humans are always trying to sort of muddy the waters of this very clear stream, right? They're always trying to make it more complicated. And so um, beautiful, fractured people that we are, and just want to take just a second, actually. Turn to the person next to you and say, uh, you're beautiful. No, don't be creepy. Just say you're beautiful. That's fine. Um, it's okay. We're in church. We can do this. We're one family. Um, and now also say to them, but you're fractured. <laughs> and then say, and that's Okay. And then maybe pat them on the shoulder. There you go. There. Okay. This is sort of the reality, though. Beautiful, fractured people that we are, we have a hard time sticking to the path. So I found we come up with a billion different theories, theologies, doctrines, reasons why love God and love others isn't enough, right? It's got to be more complicated than that. It's kind of the way we are. But Jesus says, that's what bearing fruit looks like. And here's what I mean in the scripture. Loving God, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. It's important. Everything Jesus did in the story, everything, he found himself getting ready, getting recentered, getting revitalized through prayer. 
If you read the story, you see every time Jesus went to do something, every time he got up in the morning and he knew that day was going to be full of ministry stuff, he, he spent time with his father in remote places, you know, by himself, and he breathed the breath of God and got his heartbeat aligned with what God was doing. And then it says anytime he had a, a ministry time, he'd go away and do the same thing to revitalize and recharge. For him, uh, it was the same as breathing. He couldn't, he couldn't live without prayer. And it says he gets really ticked off because in the temple, which was this place that was supposed to be where the broken and the hungry and the hurting and the faithful, all of these people were supposed to come and be part of this and breathe the breath of God together as one. And it says something totally different was happening. He sees it. Now, I've worked actually in a church in various settings here for 14 years, if you can believe that. So I kind of grew up working in a church. And, and one of the things that I've seen uh, over time, you know, I've been to all these conferences and I've been to all, seen all these sort of movements in the church that go and kind of ebb and flow. And, you know, so we've had all these different strategies for how to make the church bear fruit. You know, we had the purpose-driven church for a while and that's really good. And then we had the evangelism explosion church and some of you might remember that and that was really good. And then we had the church growth movement, which is also really good. And we've had the seeker-sensitive movement, which had some really good things as well. And, and then we had the emotionally healthy church for a while and that was good in its time as well. And yet the consistent thing I've seen here at Hosanna is when we put prayer at the center of everything we do. You know, when our leadership, our staff, our volunteers, everyone who comes, when we're all breathing the same breath of God through our lungs, and when we begin to call out to the God, you know, it's the God that that Jesus called Abba, Father, you know, this deep term of intimacy and love and connection. He said, this is the God we serve. When we call out to this God, the same God, Jesus said, he cares about the sparrows. And if you think of God in this way, when we begin to cry out to that God, we get so full of his presence and his love and his mercy and his goodness that it's like taking a deep drink of water like on a hot day for us when we're breathing deep from his lungs, the air that he breathes. That's when we begin to see the kind of fruit that Jesus is talking about. So if we want to bear fruit, prayer has to be a priority for us. What's the second piece of what Jesus says? Love God. My my house shall be called a house of prayer. Love others for all nations. For all nations. In the scriptures, when you see nations, don't think necessarily countries with boundaries, nation states. Think people. Think nationalities. You know, every tribe, tongue, and race of people. This is the idea. My house shall be called a house of prayer for everyone. Uh, how many of you love history or even like it a little? <laughs> right, that's more. Okay, good. How many of you don't like history at all? Now we've covered everyone for the most part. Um, I like history a lot. It's one of the things that I like to engage with, especially from this time period. So if you read about this second temple here, one of the things that you begin to see is that as the temple started, it was a place where it said everyone who wants to come is welcome. But as time went on, some segregation started to happen. 
And I showed you the picture of the outer courts there. And the outer courts, the place with the most space, were actually the only place that's as far in as the Gentiles could go to worship. They were welcome to come and worship, but they couldn't go any further than these outer courts. Now, raise your hand if you're Jewish. Jewish. There's, okay, there's usually a couple in here who come from a Jewish background. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile. Everybody else should have their hands up. There we go. Okay, the definition of a Gentile is someone who's not Jewish, right? That's the way we think. So anybody who came from any other place around that came and they wanted to connect with this same God, they were kind of stuck in this outer place. And it says here that this is the very place where the money changers and the animal merchants had set up their wares. So imagine trying to hold like a prayer service or a worship service in the Miracle of Life barn at the state fair, you know. A little chaotic, right? I mean, you hear plucking and mooing and whatever else, bawing probably, lots of bawing. I think they had like thousands of sheep in the temple at this time. So it would be loud and cacophonous and really hard to do any kind of worship whatsoever. So in some ways, it was a very subtle way for the religious leaders to say to the people on the outside, you don't really matter that much. And Jesus comes, and he gets ticked off, and he says, if it's either for everyone, or it's for no one. He says, we either live with open arms towards those who are different, you know, towards those who are on the outside, towards those who are forgotten, towards those who are uncared for, despised, marginalized, maybe even morally reprehensible to us. The objectionable ones, the distasteful ones, the inappropriate ones, the annoying ones, maybe even the mean and nasty ones. We either live with our arms open to them or we don't do this thing. And he goes on to say that basically if we don't live in this way with arms open towards these people who are on the outside, then basically we're robbers. You know, it's a den of thieves. Like, we're taking the gifts that were given to us by God to bear fruit, and we're hoarding them to themselves, ourselves just like the fig tree. And there might be leaves there, but there's not fruit. I was thinking, you know, what's a good picture to kind of represent Jesus' posture uh, towards people on the outside? And I came across this pic, and I, I love this picture. I think it really shows, you know, Jesus had some harsh words for religious leaders, but when it came to everybody else, this was his posture. And I have to say, it's interesting. Um, a week doesn't go by where I'm not sort of astounded and have communication with people who are followers of Jesus who are trying to sort of basically get out of the idea that that's important for us, that loving others is important in this way. Uh, just this past week, actually, I had a conversation with someone, and they were, you know, they're talking about what Jesus is doing in their life, and then they went on to sort of say, uh, basically lay out a legal argument to me, sort of, as to why they didn't need to love their Muslim neighbors. You know, why it's not required because of this and this and, you know. Now, as one of the pastors here, I certainly don't speak for everybody. I speak just for Luke Allison right now. But I just kind of want to say it plainly for me, where I'm at right now in my walk with Jesus is I don't really want to hear criticisms of people that we're not willing to engage with and have relationship with. 
You know, I don't want to hear us criticize, you know, Muslims or immigrants or whoever else it might be that we see on the outside based on things we've heard or whatever if we're not actually actively engaging in love in their lives. I want to hear different stories. Uh, Mark and Kathy Stranyard, who are some people that go here, they just sent an email to all of us and they showed a picture of them. They're in Indonesia right now and they said, having breakfast with some dear friends. And it was three people who are Muslims who had, you know, full garb on and everything and they're hanging out drinking coffee with them. These are their dear friends. You know, those are the kind of stories that make me say, maybe there's something to this whole love of God thing. You know, I want to hear the stories of And I know they're out there. I want to hear the stories of how, you know, maybe you took their kids and babysat your neighbor's kids so they could go on a date night because they don't have a lot of time or money, you know, to do that. Or or maybe you got invited over to their house for a wonderful dinner because they trust you and they want to get to know you more. Or maybe they came to you in a time of crisis because they see you as a person of love and of peace. And they say, I knew I could share this with you because I know you're a trustworthy person. I want to hear those stories. You know, I don't want to hear the criticisms. I want to hear those stories. That's fruit. And friends, we were created to what? To bear fruit. Now, I don't say this from a position of being like, I'm getting this all right, you know, and this is always kind of interesting. Being a person who's up front, sometimes you can feel that pressure of like, I need to have the market cornered on fruit bearing, you know, <laughs> Uh, And I don't, believe it or not, always. I've struggled actually for years with this kind of who am I mentality, you know. It's the who am I, you know, who am I to share my faith with others or to engage with others? Who am I when I struggle with anger, when I struggle with judging people constantly and criticizing people the same way I just said, when I secretly inside, you know, when I'm out, I like to read a book and I like to be left alone. And so I'm not sitting there saying, oh God, please bring me someone. I'm going, please keep them away, God, you know, when I'm reading. Maybe you can identify with this because I'm tired and I just want to be left alone. Or who am I when I wake up in the morning to pray and it's like pulling teeth to even do it for five minutes sometimes? Maybe you're feeling that way too. Here's the good news. We need some of that sometimes is that if my message today were simply, all of you do a better job bearing fruit, now go. You would be right to feel hopeless about this because there's this thing that comes on us that says, I know I'm created to do this, but I can't do it. It's hard. And folks, that's basically the gospel in a nutshell that what we can't do, he has done and he can do. (laughs) I've discovered that what I can't accomplish in my own strength I find this power working in me when I open myself up and I say, please, I need your help. I can't do this. I start to experience this difference inside of me that starts to remove things. Like right now, I think there's a great, great like pall of fear that hangs over so many people, like a spirit of fear that causes people to look at people on the outside and go, oh, no, I can't do that. And the scriptures say God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power and of love and of a sound mind. Fear has never been a part of God's strategy to bear fruit. So I believe today that one of the things God wants to do in our lives is to break down that wall of fear that's been created and to open us up to whole new possibilities of fruit bearing. And I guarantee you they're out there, they're present, they're happening to us every day. 
In John's gospel, shortly after Jesus has done the whole temple thing, he's talking to some people and he's sharing with them about his death that's coming. And he says this, this is interesting. He says, unless a grain falls, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it produces much fruit. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he dies. And a power is unleashed. A seed is unleashed that makes it possible for every person in this room to connect in, to have that seed growing inside of them that leads to the kind of fruit that he desires in us. He wants to see us bear this fruit and he's done everything, everything possible to make it happen for us. And all we need to do is to grab a hold of that truth and that reality and bring it into the center of who we are and say, yes, this is what I want. Because of what he's done, we can bear the fruit he has called us to bear. And so I want to pray. I get a little intense. I'm sorry. I want to pray. Um, I want to pray for three people specifically. The first one would be those folks who have never said yes to Jesus before, who have never said, I want to be part of this thing that Jesus is doing. I want to follow Jesus. And to those of you who have never done this before, it's as simple as simply saying, I'm sorry, and then saying, I I want to live a different life. I want to leave the past behind, and I want to move forward into this new thing. So if that's you, I encourage you in the quiet of your heart to do that, and then talk to me afterwards if you want to pray some more. It's a whole new life of fruit in front of you. And then for the second group of people, Those folks who maybe are struggling because maybe you've hit a certain point and there's a wall in front of you where there's no more fruit happening and maybe you feel that sense of fear that I talked about. And you want that to be gone, but it's hard to do and you need Jesus' help. So I want to pray for you too. And then I want to pray for the third group, and that's those who have been faithfully bearing fruit for years. And I just want to pray more and more and more. Like for those of you who have been doing this and maybe you're in that third leg of your life, it's not done yet. There's so much more fruit to be born out there. So I want to pray for you as well. So Heavenly Father, I pray for each group here, Father, that you would bring your Holy Spirit to bear on each situation and each issue and that you would start that process of fruit being grown and born in their lives, no matter who it is, that first group, the second, the third, or anybody else. I ask that your Holy Spirit would begin to plant that seed and that we would become a congregation of people, a body of believers who bear much fruit. In Jesus' name, the only one who can make us bear fruit. Amen. Amen.